I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I have developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. Today's podcast features Genesis chapters 8 through 11. This is the new King James Version of the podcast. There's also a King James Version available. In Genesis chapter 8 verse 1, we have ourselves a flood. Then God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the animals that were with him in the ark, and God made a wind to pass over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were also stopped, and the rain from heaven was restrained. And the waters receded continually from the earth. At the end of the hundred and fifty days, the waters decreased. Then the ark rested in the seventh month, the seventeenth day of the month, on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters decreased continually until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. So it came to pass at the end of forty days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made. Then he sent out a raven which kept going to and fro until the waters had dried up from the earth. He also sent out from himself a dove to see if the waters had receded from the face of the ground. But the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot, and she returned into the ark to him, for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her, and drew her into the ark to himself. And he waited yet another seven days, and again he sent the dove out from the ark. Then the dove came to him in the evening, and behold, a freshly plucked olive leaf was in her mouth. And Noah knew that the waters had receded from the earth. So he waited yet another seven days, and sent out the dove, which did not return again to him any more. And it came to pass in the six hundred and first year, in the first month, the first day of the month, that the waters were dried up from the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and indeed the surface of the ground was dry. And in the second month, on the twenty-seventh day of the month, the earth was dried. Now the flood began back in Genesis chapter 7. One year and ten days on the ark with a bunch of animals. Well, it beats the fatal swim that everyone else took. A raven and three dove flights later, they get the go-ahead to disembark. Now, on the written notes of BibleTrack.org for today, I've included a timeline of the flood. And you can see day minus seven, which is where it began when they load the animals, all the way down to the end of the flood in Genesis chapter 8, verse 14. Is it not interesting that Noah and his family stayed on the ark for 84 days after the land appeared dry? That in itself constitutes an act of faith. How many would have reasoned that if it's dry outside, why not go ahead and get out right now, right here? Well, it's worth noting the difference in the expressions between verses 13 and 14. We're told in verse 13 that on day 283, the face of the ground was dry. In verse 14, we're told, was the earth dried? The Hebrew word used for face there is usually a reference to a human face. It's likely that verse 13 expresses the mere appearance of the surface, while verse 14 declares that all conditions are now safe. 
However, they waited for God's command to leave. Come to think of it, they may not have had a choice but to stay on the ark for those additional 87 days. According to Genesis chapter 7, verse 16, before their 370-day odyssey began, it specifically says, and the Lord shut him in. Since God had shut them in, one might very well assume that no one leaves until God lets them out. Then we find they're off the boat in Genesis chapter 8, verses 15 through 19. Then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives, with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and cattle and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, so that they may abound on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him, every animal, every creeping thing, every bird, and whatever creeps on the earth according to their families went out to the ark. But here we see that God instructs Noah to take his crowd and leave the ark. Everybody departs and touches dry land for the first time in over a year. So what's the first order of business off the ark? Well, it's an altar and a sacrifice. Verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. Well, the first order of business here is to make an animal sacrifice. That's why we needed the extra clean animals we saw back in verse 20. Those are the ones that Noah had been directed to load onto the ark back in Genesis chapter 7, verses 2 and 3. Hmm, an animal sacrifice. Have we seen this done before? Well, recall Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, where there we see that God made coats of skins to clothe Adam and Eve. I'd say there was some sacrifice involved there, but Adam himself didn't do the actual sacrificing in that instance. And then in Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, it's likely, but not specified per se, that, that Abel placed his offering of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat on an altar before God. However, here we see Noah literally building his own altar and making a burnt offering of the clean animals. Today, some would exclaim, Hey, Noah, that's no way to treat an animal. What was God's reaction to this slaughtering of innocent animals? Well, there's your answer in verse 21. It says, And the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. The Hebrew word for burnt offerings here is olah, this offering became a formal part of the Mosaic Law. This is the first usage of Olah in the Old Testament. Notice the guarantees that God gives after Noah makes his burnt offering sacrifice. We find those in verses 21 and 22. Those are regarding the destruction of the earth. The guarantee from God is plain in verse 21. He says, Nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. That's right. No more worldwide destruction of the earth, period. In this context, God speaks directly about the flood in Genesis chapter 9, verses 11 through 17. Now let's look at those verses. The Noahic covenant 
that we find beginning in Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, on all that move on the earth, and on all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require it. And from the hand of man, from the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man, and as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, And as for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth. Thus I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you, and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I set my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. It shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant which is between me and you, and every living creature of all flesh. The waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. The rainbow shall be in the cloud, and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Well, then it's on to establishing a covenant with Noah. This covenant begins with God's promise in verse 21 of chapter 8, when he says, Nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. We know this is known as the Noahic covenant. Well, obvious, right? Genesis chapter 9 verse 1 says, So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Does that sound like a command to you? Well, we're going to see when we get down to Genesis chapter 11 the significance of this verse as man declined to replenish the whole earth. They chose instead to stay in one locale. Verse 6 says, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. Well, here's the foundational statement regarding capital punishment. The Mosaic Law would later add much detail upon this foundation. Then God establishes an unconditional covenant in verses 8 through 17. For perspective, let's, let's look over the provisions and requirements of this Noahic covenant. First of all, in verse 1 and verse 7 of chapter 9, we see, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. In verses 2 and 3, we see no more vegetarian diet. While they started out as vegetarians in Genesis chapter 1, verses 29 and 30, that changes here. Verse 4, no eating blood, period. 
Verses 5 and 6, personal accountability for loss of life. That's the first mention of capital punishment. In verses 9 through 11 and verse 15, we see that there will be no more global floods. And finally, the rainbow was given as a token of the covenant. We see that in verses 12 to 14 and verses 16 and 17. Now, regarding these verses 8 through 17, let me read you an entry out of the Jewish study Bible which you may find interesting. In the Talmud, it's taught that the descendants of Noah, that is, the universal humanity, they're obligated by seven commandments. And here they are, to establish courts of justice. Number two, to refrain from blaspheming the God of Israel, as well as, number three, from idolatry. Number four, sexual perversion. Number five, bloodshed. And number six, robbery. And number seven, not to eat meat cut from a living animal. Whereas Jews have hundreds of commandments in addition to these seven, traditionally they render them as 613 commandments, Gentiles who observe just these seven commandments of the descendants of Noah can meet with God's full approval according to Jewish tradition. In other words, observant Jews today regard all Gentiles who observe these seven components of the what they call the Noahide laws as those who meet God's approval. They fully acknowledge that the law of Moses is for Jews and not for Gentiles. Verses 11 through 17 deal with the token that God gave for the accompanying provision that the earth would never be destroyed by flood again. Actually, chapter 8, verse 21 declared that the earth would not be destroyed in its entirety by God's judgment by any means. But the immediate interest here is by flood. Hence, the rainbow becomes the token of that covenant. The rainbow wasn't just a decorative touch placed there by God as a token. There was actually a functional reason for it. Now, consider with me the following with regard to the token of the rainbow. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, we see that the firmament was created to divide the waters from the waters. This firmament divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. The earth was engulfed with a canopy of water. There was no rain before the flood, according to Genesis chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. The earth was watered by a process of evaporation and condensation between the water on the earth and the water above the firmament. In Genesis chapter 7, verse 11, we're told there that the windows of heaven were opened. That's leading to the flood. Specifically, the canopy of water above the earth began to disintegrate and continued to do so for 40 days. Add that to the fountains of the great deep, in other words, the water under the surface of the earth, and that was broken up, and you've got a lot of water suddenly dumped upon the surface of the earth. So while the canopy of water was in place over the earth, the earth was never exposed to direct rays of sunlight. It was always diffused by the moisture comprising the canopy. However, after the flood, the canopy of water over the earth was gone. Now direct sunlight did make it all the way to the surface of the earth. Rays of sunshine refracting through the pockets of moisture create rainbows. When the canopy was gone, rainbows were possible. The rainbow was a sign that the canopy of water had collapsed causing the flood, and that that canopy no longer existed. 
Hence, no more floods were possible as long as rainbows were visible because those rainbows would not be possible until the canopy of water was removed from over the earth. Now, as an aside to this discussion, you'll notice that lifespans began to be shorter after the flood. Some have speculated that it had been the canopy of water diffusing the harmful effects of the sun on one's body that permitted extreme longevity while that canopy was in place. Well, now, that sounds like a viable theory to me. Then we have an unfortunate incident taking place in verses 18 to 29. Verse 18. Now the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. And Noah began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. Then he drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. So Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. Then he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. And Noah lived after the flood three hundred and fifty years. So all the days of Noah were nine hundred and fifty years, and he died. Well, Noah had a little too much to drink from his vineyard. His son Ham went into Noah's tent and saw him uncovered. He went to tell his brothers, Shem and Japheth. They backed into Noah's tent and covered him up. When Noah awoke, he was outraged over what Ham had done, seen him disrobed. So he passed out some cursings and blessings. A curse on Ham's youngest son, Canaan. And blessings on Shem and Japheth in verses 25 through 27. Incidentally, this curse was used as the basis for slavery in the early foundations of the United States of America, and that was by the proponents of the practice. It was taught that this curse meant that the black population of the continent of Africa, being Ham's descendants, were preordained to be servants. Many slave owners in early America had a sincere abiding faith in God and the Bible. However, their doctrinal basis for slavery was actually misguided based on a skewed teaching of Scripture. Now, here's the real story regarding the curse Noah issued that day. Canaan was the only one of Ham's sons who was actually cursed according to verse 25. Why? I don't know. There was no curse on his other sons, the ones who actually migrated into Egypt and then migrated into Africa. The land of Canaan, well, that should sound familiar to you. We see in Genesis chapter 10, verses 15 through 19, that this is where the descendants of Canaan landed after the flood. It was the land that became Israel's homeland per God's decree in Genesis chapter 12, verse 7. This curse, whatever its generational reach, applied only to Canaan, not to the whole line of Ham. Perhaps it was only one generation, but if it applied to successive generations, we see in Joshua's conquest of the land of the Canaanites hundreds of years later that these descendants of Canaan 
actually became the servants of the Hebrews after they conquered the land. Now, one more thing. Some have elaborated upon the scenario of Ham's sin in this passage to make his deeds much more sinister than actually stated in the passage. Was his shortcoming only that he saw the nakedness of his father? Was more than that involved? Well, it's impossible to know for sure. All we see here is that the actions of Ham are contrasted to the actions of his two brothers. Anything beyond that is just mere speculation. And then after 950 years, Noah died. Chapter 10 gives us a whole big long chapter of genealogies. You gotta love genealogies. Helps you know where you are and where you're headed. Verse 1. Now this is the genealogy of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth were Gomer, Magog, Medai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, and Tyrus. The sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Togarma. The sons of Javan were Elisha, Tarshish, Kedem, and Dodanim. From these, the coastland peoples of the Gentiles were separated into their lands, every one according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. The sons of Ham were Cush, Mizraim, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush were Seba, Havilah, Sabtah, Ra'amah, and Sabtakah. And the sons of Ra'amah were Sheba and Dedan. Cush begot Nimrod, he began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord, therefore it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From that land he went to Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ir, Calah, and Reson between Nineveh and Calah, that's the principal city. Mizraim begot Ludim, Enamim, Lehabim, Naphtahim, Pathrusim, and Kosluhim, from whom came the Philistines, and Kaphtorim. Canaan begot Sidon, his firstborn, and Heath, the Jebusite, the Amorite, and the Girgashite, the Hivite, the Archite, and the Sinite, the Arvadite, the Zimmerite, and the Hamathite. Afterward, the families of the Canaanites were dispersed. And the border of the Canaanites was from Sidon, as you go toward Gerar, as far as Gaza. Then, as you go toward Sodom, Gomorrah, Admah, and Zeboim, as far as Lasha. These were the sons of Ham, according to their families, according to their languages, in their lands, and in their nations. And children were born also to Shem, the father of all the children of Eber the brother of Japheth, the elder. The sons of Shem were Elam, Asher, Arphaxad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram were Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. Arphaxad begot Selah, and Selah begot Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan begot Almodad, Shelef, Hazer, Maveth, Jerah, Hadoram, Uzal, Dikla, Obel, Abomael, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, 
and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. And their dwelling place was from Mesha, as you go towards Sefer, the mountain of the east. These were the sons of Shem according to their families, according to their languages and their lands, according to their nations. These were the families of the sons of Noah, according to their generations, in their nations, and from these the nations were divided on the earth after the flood. Well, great excitement here, a chapter devoted to genealogies. This is one of those chapters that gives us perspective, you know, who begot whom. Let's just make a few observations here. First, notice that everyone on earth is descended from one or more of Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. In verses 8 through 10, we see the birth of the troublemaker of chapter 11, which we're going to look at in a few moments. His name is Nimrod, the grandson of Ham, through Cush. It would appear that he was a fierce fighter and exercised dominion over the others. Here's another interesting note stuck into verse 23 here. We're told that in one man's lifetime, the earth was divided. That man is Peleg, the great-grandson of Shem. It's commonly held that in the years following the flood, the continents of the earth were divided by the waters of the oceans. While secular scientists believe this division happened over an extended period of time, it would appear that the initial division took place while Peleg lived. It does make sense that some significant land settling must have taken place after the waters receded. I'm convinced that this was the natural result of the earth's recovery from the upheaval that had been caused by the flood. Incidentally, today's secular scientists, well, they commonly hold that the continents are still drifting in relation to each other. If you'd like uh, more information on this, then consult the link that I have on this page on the written notes to the uh, Institute for Creation Research. It should be noted, however, that many scholars believe that verse 23 refers to the scattering of chapter 11, verse 9, which we'll see in just a few moments, and and not the actual drifting of the continents. And that brings us to Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. It says in verse 1, Now the whole earth had one language and one speech, and it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language. And this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they purpose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. Well, God did give a command to Noah after his sons, Next to the ark, back in Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. He told them back then to replenish the earth. Well, their descendants didn't do so. They stayed together in one spot on the earth, and they all had a common language. From chapter 10, we deduct that Nimrod, who was a descendant of Ham, that he must have headed up this venture to build a tower that would provide a common bond to the people and keep them together under one kingdom. 
Now, what exactly was this structure they attempted to build? Well, verse 4 gives us a hint, but not a clear answer when it says, Let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. In the King James Version, the editors added the words, May reach the heavens in italicized type. And that was to indicate that they were added for the purpose of supplying a verb that simply doesn't exist in the phrase in Hebrew. The New King James Version simply says, Whose top is in the heavens. In my opinion, many have read way too much into this verse, adding their own verb combinations to make it everything from a tower that could climb up to God's abode to a structure that displayed the signs of the zodiac on its dome. But here's the real point. It was a city and a monument to organize a rebellion against God's command to populate the earth. I mean, that's enough said. Look at the last part of verse 4 to see the motivation they had for building the structure. It says there, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. In short, God said, replenish the earth. The people said, we're staying right here. And what was the name of the city? Well, some say Babel and some say Babel. It's a transliteration from the Hebrew. As a matter of fact, it's the exact same word translated Babylon later in the Old Testament. And in the book of Revelation, it's the Babylon transliterated into Greek there, or from Greek, should I say, of Revelation chapter 18. Since it's first mentioned as Nimrod's base of operation, Genesis chapter 10, verse 10, it's always been the epitome of a city in rebellion against God, Old Testament and New Testament. As they embarked upon this project, God confounded their language, causing them to disperse over the whole earth. After they gathered with people who spoke their own newly acquired common language, the continents drifted apart to form separate land masses. Remember Peleg back in chapter 10, verse 23? During his lifetime, the earth was divided. When we look at the genealogical records of chapters 10 and 11, we see that the descendants of Shem basically traveled east and settled on the eastern side of the Arabian Peninsula, the descendants of Japheth northward into Europe, and the sons of Ham southwest into Egypt and Africa. Incidentally, we're all related to at least one of these three sons of Noah. Since this continental separation took place after the confusion of the tongues, it's logical to assume that intermarriage between the descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth took place prior to the continental separation. This obviously accounts for the unique physical characteristics of more than three races of people. Likewise, it stands to reason that, after the separation of the continents, certain physical traits would then be accentuated over the centuries that followed, as they only married others with similar physical characteristics. Then we have more genealogies in chapter 11, beginning with verse 10. This is the genealogy of Shem. Shem was 100 years old and begat Arphaxad two years after the flood. After he begot Arphaxad, Shem lived 500 years and begot sons and daughters. Arphaxad lived 35 years and begot Selah. After he begot Selah, Arphaxad lived 403 years and begot sons and daughters. Selah lived 30 years and begot Eber. After he begot Eber, Selah lived 403 years and begot sons and daughters. Eber lived 34 years and begot Peleg. After he begot Peleg, Eber lived 430 years and begot sons and daughters. Peleg lived 30 years and begot Reu. After he begot Reu, Peleg 
lived 209 years and begot sons and daughters. Ryu lived 32 years and begot Sirig. After he begot Sirig, Ryu lived 207 years and begot sons and daughters. Sirig lived 30 years and begot Nahor. After he begot Nahor, Sirig lived 200 years and begot sons and daughters. Nahor lived 29 years and begot Terah. After he begot Terah, Nahor lived 119 years and begot sons and daughters. Now Terah lived 70 years and begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. This is the genealogy of Terah. Terah begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran begot Lot, and Haran died before his father Terah in his native land in Ur of the Chaldeans. Then Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. But Sarai was barren. She had no child. And Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abram's wife, and they went out with them from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. And they came to Haran and dwelt there. So the days of Terah were two hundred and five years, and Terah died in Haran. Now here's the significance of this genealogical record. It's the family tree of Abraham, also known here as Abram, before his name was changed. As a descendant of Shem, his ancestors had settled in Ur, a city that was located in the southeastern part of the current-day Iraq. We see in this passage that his father, Terah, he took the family and migrated northwest to Haran, a city close to the border of current-day Turkey and Syria. We'll see in Genesis chapter 12 that God led Abraham southwest from Haran to the land of Canaan. Incidentally, Abram's father, Terah, he began this move to Canaan according to verse 31. They traveled along the Euphrates to get there, a trip which led them to Haran where they settled. It would not have been feasible to head directly west toward the mountain range to go to Canaan. Abraham finishes the trip to Canaan from Haran in Genesis chapter 12, although through Haran the trip to Canaan would have been approximately 1,500 miles. As for the religious affiliation of Terah, well, notice the comment Joshua makes about Terah and Abraham's ancestors in Joshua chapter 24, verse 2, where he says, And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, dwelt on the other side of the river in old times, and they served other gods. Prior to Abraham, his people were polytheists. As a matter of fact, the evidence suggests that the relatives back in Haran remained polytheist when we see Laban with his idols. Remember the ones that Rachel lifted in Genesis chapter 31? We see that Laban had idols as Jacob decides it's time to leave Laban and head back to Canaan. Oh, one more thing. Did you notice how the lifespans have decreased compared to the genealogical record of Genesis chapter 5? Well, what's up with that? Well, two notable things are different at this point in time in contrast to Genesis chapter 5. First of all, that canopy of water that we talked about engulfing the earth, well, it's disappeared after the flood. We see that in Genesis chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. Perhaps that had previously offered some protection from harsh environmental effects on the body. Secondly, their diet changed. In Genesis chapter 9, verses 2 and 3, 
However, it didn't happen immediately after the flood. It took a few hundred years of gradually decreasing lifespans before they began to fall into the range to which we're accustomed. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Fayette Bible Church, Paul Walker.